Welcome to Special Programming, produced by the Public Communication of Science undergraduate students here at the University of Ottawa. In this course, SCI 3101, the Public Communication of Science, undergraduate science students learn skills related to communicating their knowledge to non-specialist audiences in the general public. That's us. As one of their assignments, they are tasked in pairs or alone to produce a five to eight minute podcast on any scientific topic of their choice. Using any approach of their choosing, the students were to produce a short media clip that would be informative, accessible, and interesting to an audience from the general public. In this series, we have stories, interviews, and conversations that range from COVID vaccines to black holes in the universe. So hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. So today we have Dr. Martha McKay, a clinical psychologist located at the University of Toronto to discuss her research into eating behavior, hormones, stress, and depression. Dr. McKay, would you like to say a few words to introduce yourself? Yes, thank you for having me. I'm Dr. Martha McKay. I'm a clinical psychologist and clinical neuropsychologist as well. Um, I'm actually at the University Health Network working in the clinical role and also practice lead for psychology there. Um, and I work in the brain and spine program at uh, Toronto Rehab. Um, and the research I'm going to speak about today, though, was conducted um, at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto and through the University of Toronto. So let's start off at your research. Could you briefly describe your research to us? Sure. What we were focused on was looking at various aspects of clinical depression, particularly weight disturbances and appetite disturbances, which are a common symptom of depression that can lead to other complications like obesity or weight-related issues. Um, so we wanted to look at whether what, what are some of the contributing factors to this relationship. So as you may know, that symptom of depression is what's known as bidirectional. So so meaning people can experience either a loss of appetite, which could result in um, reduction of eating, um, an intake of food, or it could uh, relate to an increase in appetite, uh, which can result in an increase in food intake or increase of specific types of foods like sugary, high fat, carb, all the good mm -hmm. stuff that can also contribute to weight disturbances as well. So we know that there is a connection between stress and eating eating. And that is also that does occur within depression as well. And with um, depression, it's also known depression and stress, there may be altered reactions either in hormones or perceptions of stress with people who experience depression. So what we wanted to do is kind of add that component and also eating behavior components, things like emotional eating, which is, is also associated with stress and eating. At that time, you know, starting to look at within depression and show that individuals may be more prone to emotional eating when experiencing depression. And so we wanted to look at some of the hormones that might contribute to that. So hormones regulate um, appetite and satiety. Findings within depression in comparison to those without depression were inconsistent. So we wanted to see if there was any difference in those hormones in those with depression um, comparison to those without and under two conditions. One where we induced 
stress. And it's a well-known social stress task. And the other condition was after eating a meal. So we wanted to see how those two conditions could impact those hormones within depression. And what we found that under those two conditions, there was no difference. That that was it in a nutshell. <laughs> Thank you. That was a great answer for that first question. Um, so do you find that there's variation based on age group or a cultural background? Or are there any significant factors that alter? Yeah, it's a great question. As we know, you know, weight can change with age um, and over time. However, in this uh, line of research, the age group that we collected was fairly restrictive. Um, so I wouldn't be able to say based on um, what we did over time, how either these hormones change. I wouldn't be able to say how these hormones change over time and with age because we didn't really collect data in that manner. So that would be challenging to comment on based on the study that I did. So for something like that, you'd probably want to launch longitudinal study that looked at um, these varying, how these hormones may vary over time. Would you be able to elaborate on like any challenges that you had when you were doing your research? Yes, there are a lot of challenges. So I'll start with trying just to pick what we were going to focus on. So as you can imagine, how our appetite and body weight and all that stuff is controlled involves numerous systems, uh, both centrally and peripherally. And so it's really, really challenging to try to control all the extra variables that might impact the results that we have. And so that is a limitation of this research. Um, and so, you know, we just focused on these particular hormones based on their association with a stress system and things like that. Um, but that was a big challenge to kind of figure out how to, how to control these things and, and realizing that we really couldn't control all of the potential variables that might contribute to what we're seeing. And the other thing is really logistics. Like <laughs> if anyone is doing clinical research, number one, they know how hard it is to recruit um, individuals to participate. And you're always keeping in mind the safety um, of the individuals that have agreed to participate in research. And, you know, inducing stress can be very distressful for some individuals. Um, figuring out how to collect the hormones was, was also a big challenge um, that we had to spend some time uh, working through. So for example, um, how to collect serial blood samples without having to poke somebody several times, because um, that's what we did over the course of the challenges. And so we ended up using what's called a blood pump, which no one's ever heard of. <laughs> It was uh, my supervisor's, uh, he had previously used it actually in Ottawa. Um, and so uh, just managing how to how to use that safely and having the right um, staff that included physicians available if um, anything were to, were to happen. And then just um, figuring out the hormones themselves are really, they can be tricky um, to measure. So making sure we have an accurate measure of those hormones. So in particular, ghrelin, um, if you want to capture it in its active form, you have to do so within a particular time frame. And that wasn't really well known. And so we had to figure out um, by just, a, you know, extra experiments to, to figure out what was the optimal time to capture that. And then, of course, that had to be um, factored into the uh, experiment schedule and the logistics of it. So to be very honest, I have a large group to thank for all of their help um, with conducting this particular study. I had physicians helping me. Uh, graduate students and I also had an, a great group of volunteers that helped so so a lot went into this so the, there was there was numerous challenges along the way 
So thank you for that. So we tend to find that the general population tends to make unintentional correlations about the results of hot topic studies. Would you be able to elaborate on the limits of your own personal research? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think when when we do research, uh, we all know of the limitations. So as I already spoke of, trying to control all the confounding variables that might impact is just, you know, sometimes it's not possible. So you do the best you can. I think with this particular research, I think for me, we, um, you know, in this whole process, we really measure certain um, symptoms in a bi-directional way. And I'm not sure that's fully capturing what actually happens um, to individuals. So, you know, for example, we measure loss of appetite versus overappetite, reduced eating versus overeating, but I'm not sure that's actually what happens on a day-to-day basis for individuals. And so missing out on the nuances of that. So maybe someone's eating less, but they're eating one meal and it's a huge meal full of, you know, all the good stuff and or convenient foods or that type of thing. This research didn't necessarily capture that. Um, the other thing is when you're, you know, trying to um, mimic things like stress in an in an experimental setting, um, you know, there are limits to that. It, it's, it's, you know, it, it is sort of a, you know, it's a social stress test that is well validated and, and used frequently, but it, it may not mimic the everyday stressors that people um, experience or and it's one type of stress, you know, it's a social stressor, whereas other people may may experience various types of stress. So yeah, there's, there's definitely lots of limitations when you are trying to design a study and and make it fit and try to control for as many things as you can. I think that's a great take on like the generalizability of your findings. Yeah. And so um, we were just wondering before we conclude our interview, what would be the key takeaway about your research that you wish the public to know? I I think, you know, there's there's this whole idea of, you know, stress-induced eating. I don't think it's as simple and there may be a number of different factors and I think, you know, even with some of the findings that we have, you know, perhaps certain eating behaviors over time with, you know, the way hormones might be released throughout the day is that a, is can can the way that we eat impact that and change that over time? I don't know based on the results of the current study, but it's certainly something that's so I, I think, yeah, it's just it's not as simple as stress induced eating is either way. Um, it's much more complicated. So once again, Dr. McKay, thank you for taking the time for our podcast today. And we hope that we can all take away an important message from our session. So until next time. You just heard one episode in a series of podcasts produced by the Public Communication of Science undergraduate students here at the University of Ottawa. 